This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. religion is your preferred guilt management system, that everyone is walking around with a certain degree of guilt and shame, and we're looking to unload this burden of shame and this, this bad feeling, and so we all have some kind of system that allow, or we're looking for some kind of system to grant us some form of functional absolution. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is David Zoll. He's the founder and director of Mockingbird Ministries. He's editor-in-chief of the popular Mockingbird website, and he's co-host of The Mockingcast, which is a podcast that they produce. He and his family live in Charlottesville, Virginia, where he serves on the staff of Christ Episcopal Church. David Zoll is the author of A Mess of Help from the Crucified Soul of Rock and Roll, and co-author of Law and Gospel, A Theology for Sinners and Saints. Today, we're going to be talking about his recent book, Seculosity, How Career Parenting, Technology, Food, Politics, and Romance Became Our New Religion, and What to Do About It. David Zoll, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you so much for having me. So glad to be here. So I'm very curious in sort of diving into this book. The book is encyclopedic in terms of its analysis of our current culture. And one of the things that I'd like to ask, first of all, is what was it that drove you to write this book? Well, you know, I've been writing for our the website, the Mockingbird website that we started about 12 years ago. I've been writing for that for about for 12 years. And during that time, I've, you know, almost it's like a byproduct of running a website that people write for and that evolves over time in a time when there's there's so much information and commentary coming at you. One of the you know, happy byproducts of that is that I've gotten to sort of witness various trends and things happening that, you know, uh, people ask me, well, how did you get so widely read? And I say, I, I didn't. I just have a lot of people doing a lot of reading that I then edit. <laughs> so, I, so I get to um, pretend like I know more than I do. But over the years, seeing certain trends, especially as it relates to our spiritual and religious practices in America and, and the little threads that weave through the anxieties and demands of everyday life. I, I saw some things that felt like um, maybe I had something fresh to say, uh, especially as relates to how um, sort of more secular expressions of religious impulses are, are take place. And uh, and then I heard a few commentators that I really respect, people really outside any kind of confessional or religious church uh, setting, say the same thing, that they noticed that there was a almost like a vacuum at the heart of where we are right now in society that people are trying to fill uh, with all sorts of new religions or at least uh, new kind of systems to provide us meaning and purpose and community and, and even salvation. So I sort of thought I had something to say. I had a, I had a publisher who was very interested in me saying it. That should be said, too. 
and um, I enjoy the process of writing. So it was a kind of a, a bunch of different things. I also took a sabbatical before I embarked on this book, during which time I thought, what do I, what, what, what's next? What kind of project can I really sink my teeth into? And this is what it, what it turned out to be. Well, let's take a step back then. You're the founder of Mockingbird Ministries, and you say you write for the Mockingbird website. Tell my listeners what that is and what the purpose of that ministry is and what the blog is intended to do. Sure. Mockingbird is an organization we were started about 12 years ago. And originally it was an attempt to kind of reach out to young adults in New York City who, who maybe had, had a negative experience of the church. And we, we were had an extra special place in our heart for those people. And so I was in New York, and I had friends who were friends at churches there. So we had some resources, and uh, we started doing all sorts of uh, activities really trying to stress the grace of God as it relates to regular people in ways that maybe didn't get a fair hearing. In It doesn't get a fair hearing in certain, you know, traditions. And a lot of people that end up in New York, I think, are, are coming from maybe a toxic expression of religion that they're trying to get away from. So we were doing this, and it we started a website, um, of course, because you want to, if you want to reach young adults, you have to be on the web. But this is 2007, and that really just... That gained traction in a way that some of the other things we were doing didn't. And over time, we were just writing about myself and a group of friends, really. We are just writing about the things we found interesting and sort of looking how, to, how do we connect the grace of God with all sorts of aspects of everyday life and in non-contrived ways. And so we just started doing this thing and, and, and threw a bunch of stuff at the wall, you might say, and saw what stuck. And so over the years, then, that energy has translated into what's really become almost like a media platform. So we have podcasts and, and books that we publish and conferences we run and a very active website that is, you know, that really surveys every, everything, sort of listening for grace and its absence how that plays out in compelling and non-compelling ways. And you've mentioned a couple of times grace and its absence. I'm curious, what does grace look like on the streets of New York City? Does it look different from uh, grace on the streets of Nashville, Tennessee, or grace on the streets of, say, uh, Peoria, Illinois? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, grace is one of these slippery, or let's just say elastic terms that can mean slightly different things to different people. What we were really, our conception of grace was sort of as, 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 as love that operates beyond deserving, and that comes at you sort of when you least deserve it, in fact. And so, no, it operates the same everywhere, though, of course, it's absence. You know, you're, in, you're in New York City, and there's a whole lot of people, you know, trying to prove themselves and climb the ladder and Sometimes that can be good, but it can also be a source of enormous anxiety and burnout in which you never feel like you're enough. But that's not limited to New York City. I think you'd find that in Peoria as well as Timbuktu. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's a good question. I love the phrase you just used, love that operates beyond deserving. And that really drives us, I guess, into into the thesis of your book, and that is that we have managed somehow in our modern life, and maybe maybe this is a, a constant human condition, to distract ourselves from this idea of grace and replace it with something else. And and so you have you have coined this term as the title of your book, seculosity. And so help help us understand what you mean when you're talking about seculosity here. Well, seculosity is my combination of the word secular and uh, then the word religiosity. 
and I felt it was um, it was appropriate to have a new word. Uh, you know, it's kind of, I guess, uh, I don't know, ambitious. Some might say a little arrogant to make up a new word, but my experience of 2018, 2019, in which I was living, was that a lot of things, a lot of areas of everyday life were operating as re- religiously, sort of as um, arenas in which to prove your your worth and to receive some sort of blessing. But I, so I wanted a word that, that captured that, but with, that, that didn't ascribe belief to people, because I think that, you know, it's... it's it can be patronizing to say, "Oh, you're just believing in this or believing in that." So, seculosity was kind of was my term for um, how these things function, and it's really it's simply a, a catch-all for a religious sentiment or devotion that's directed at a earthly rather than a heavenly target. So, the way that we get what feels like religious about our parenting, that we get religious about romance, and by that. Um, you know, that, of course, means you have to define what, what on earth do you mean by religious, but maybe uh, maybe I should define that, too. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll, get, uh, we'll get to that, but I've got one follow-on question to this notion of seculosity. Now, I'm old enough to rem- remember a time when secular humanism was being trotted out in public discourse as a kind of alternative religion to the traditional religions. And, and so help me understand, before we go to break, how seculosity in your thinking is different from that kind of 1980s boogeyman of secular humanism? Well, secular humanism really as almost a specific, you know, school of thought that has human capability, has a certain view of human capability and human agency and human beauty almost uh, that kind of goes along with it. Seculosity more describes the a, a practical reality rather than an ideological one. And so it's going to, the ideological shape it takes is going to look differently. So if you have Within the seculosity of parenting, there are people uh, whose whose um, piety looks like attachment parenting, and there's going to be people whose piety looks like uh, helicopter parenting and tiger parenting and all these things. So it, one has a more ideological component and one doesn't. I'm consciously trying to talk about not in terms of idolatry, which is the traditional Christian language for some of the things that I'm talking about, but in terms of self-justification. How is it that we lean on these things to tell us we're um, enough? That's such a helpful distinction, and thank you for for indulging me in making it. You raised one other term there in your answer that I just want to clarify for our listeners. You talk about ideology. When you use that term, what do you mean by that? Well, I think that ideology usually refers to sort of a set of almost presuppositions about the world and how it works and what's important and what's true, that uh, it's like a closed system. You know, it can be a bit of a boogeyman itself when you talk about people being ideological, but usually in an ideolo- any ideological setting there is a uh, there are certain conclusions that have already been come to and everything flows from those rather than experience flowing into conclusions life flows from conclusions and is dictated by those conclusions and so you can have a religious ideology you can have a political ideology in which case there are certain um, tenets or ideas 
that are not up for grabs, that they are going to actually dictate how people interpret uh, what's going on in their lives. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with David Zoll. He's founder and director of Mockingbird Ministries, and he's co-host of their podcast, The Mockingcast. We're talking about his recent book, Seculosity, How Career, Parenting, Technology, Food, Politics, and Romance Became Our New Religion and What to Do About It. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with David Zoll. He's founder and director of Mockingbird Ministries, and he's editor-in-chief of the popular Mockingbird website, and he co-hosts their podcast, The Mockingcast. We're talking about his recent book, Seculosity, How Career, Parenting, Technology, Food, Politics, and Romance Became Our New Religion, and What to Do About It. Well, in the subtitle of your book, Parenting, Technology, Food, Politics, and Romance, there's a lot there to cover, and we'll touch on each of those as we continue the conversation. But as a way of understanding this, you give an umbrella term in your book, Seculosity, that I want to dig into a little bit. You, it's another word that you've coined, performancism. Help me understand what performancism means. Uh, yeah, performancism. It's um, it's funny, you know, when you use some of these words, people people almost intuitively know what you mean, and some of them they don't. And seculosity usually needs to be explained, and performancism is, I think, uh, almost people instinctually know what you mean. But it's simply the idea that there's no distinction between a person's essence and their performance at such and such. So there's no difference between you and your resume, or you and your social media profile, and so. We equate moral value to our achievements. It's it's almost like a it's a default way of thinking about the world, especially for those of us who've been brought up in the last thirty, forty years. Yeah, that I'm the sum not I'm not a person who happens to do things in the world and maybe uh, occasionally accomplish something. It's I am those uh, the sum of the accomplishments. So I better get moving. And it's it's a driver, I think. It's an unconscious driver of a whole lot of exhaustion and anxiety. Now, if we think about ancient wisdom, a thinker like Aristotle would suggest that we acquire virtues by habit. So as we do things that are good, we become more good ourselves. That seems to be different from what you're talking about here with performancism. This is not necessarily doing to a virtuous purpose. This just seems to be doing for the sake of doing, or have I misunderstood it? I mean, no, you have not misunderstood it. That's exactly. Bill DeResowitz in his book, Excellent Sheep, which came out a few years ago, made quite a splash on the national scene. He said that his, he's taught at a bunch of Ivy League schools, and he said that his, in, his, in his experience of young people, that they're really great at doing things but have no idea why they're doing them. That is a very performancist uh, mindset that we don't know who we are apart from um, our frenetic activity. You know, sometimes I think you can hear it in certain circles saying there's a difference between a human being and a human doing. 
a performancist mindset uh, really is, is simply uh, a, a very a scorekeeping mindset, and that whoever wins with the most toys, or whoever whoever dies with the most toys, or whoever dies with the most trophies, or whatever it is, whatever sort of scale of performance you have deemed to be important, then that is going to be the arbiter of your value, not some sort of a priori. Uh, you know, a dignity by nature of the fact that you're simply born or that you're a creature of God, for example, a child of God. In your answer just now, I mean, you talked about the one that dies with the most toys wins, but what I found most unsettling, I guess is my word, about your book, Seculosity, is it seems almost that we've reached a point where it's not even about dying with the most toys. It simply seems to be that we show up on the playground and another parent asks us how we're doing, and we need to be able to justify answering, oh, I'm so busy. Oh, I, it's so crazy. And I've, I've been guilty of doing this myself. It seems as almost like there's no goal to it other than simply to be seen as being, to be seen as doing all the time. Mm. It's a mode of living in which you're asserting your importance or your uh, significance all of the time. Some would say it's your signaling, your enoughness. And uh, yes, we do that through busyness because it's not just enough to say that you're busy. The question is always, what would it mean about you if you weren't busy today? When people say, how, how are you doing? How are you doing? Oh, I'm busy. And if you were to say, um, how are you doing? How are you doing? Well, you know, I got, I got time to spare. I'm just not really, I'm not very in demand. Uh, that is usually, that, that equates to a lesser than answer in which you've, you, we've moralized um, activity and just sort of the schedule, the calendar, in a way that doesn't really, yeah, it doesn't even matter what you're doing, it's that you're doing. And that gets to be, as we know, through the, you know, the pace of life that, that is demanded from that mentality, it can be extremely um, distressing and lonely-making and, and uh, just difficult. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with David Zoll. He's the founder and director of Mockingbird Ministries in Charlottesville, Virginia. We're talking about his recent book, Seculosity, How Career, Parenting, Technology, Food, Politics, and Romance Became Our New Religion and What to Do About It. Well, and I'm going to now paraphrase a move that you make in your book, Seculosity, but I'm going to say that, that you are suggesting that this busyness that we're talking about has become our new religion. And so maybe this would be a good place to stop for a moment and say, when we're talking about religion, what do you mean by this term? And it's a hard term to pin down, isn't it? Yes, I mean, it's a term a little like grace, I think. That is, um, it can serve different purposes. And so in the book, I'd make a distinction between capital R religion which is, you know, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, and so on. And uh, these are all, uh, you know, revelations or um, set of uh, understandings about the world and of God. But then there's the small r religion, which I refer to as really the justifying story of your life. It's it's what you're leaning on for uh, purpose and meaning and community and ritual and indeed salvation uh, another way that people seems to resonate people is like your 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 small r religion is your preferred guilt management system that everyone is walking around with a certain degree of guilt and shame just by nature of being a human being in the world that interacts with other people who've got different agendas and ideas about how the things should happen and we're looking to unload this burden of shame and this this bad feeling and so we all have some kind of system that, that allow, or we're looking for some kind of system to 
grant us some form of functional absolution. And that's what your religion is. So it's not just what you rely on for purpose and meaning and you know morality or salvation even. It's what you rely on for enoughness, for what religious people call righteousness, this idea that you are uh, enough. And that word enough is a big word for anyone who's interested in what it is that's making our lives today so uh, lonely and uh, anxious and um, divided and exhausted. So if I'm hearing you correctly, these little r religions are coping mechanisms. And what's what's fascinating to me about that is if we look at someone like Karl Marx, who in some circles is is seen as antithetical to religion, Marx talked about religion as a type of drug that you would use to soothe yourself in really terrible conditions. And what I'm hearing you saying is that we've we may have gotten rid of the capital R religion that Marx was talking about, and instead we've supplanted it with these little r religions, but it still is about self-soothing. It's about dealing with, as you say, the guilt. It's about dealing with the, the sense of not enoughness. Is that just because we live in a terrifying world, or have we created ghosts for ourselves that drive us to these little r religions? Well, that's a great uh, example. I mean, in Marxism, you, you definitely have an ideology at work that about says that this is, you know, about power and how people sort of are motivated and, and what's important in life. But you also, anyone who's been involved in sort of at least uh, neo-Marxist thought knows that there are certain things you're definitely not allowed to say, certain heresies. In terms of what exactly is going on, yeah, I think that there, there was this idea out there that once we sort of jettisoned capital R religion, that then we would stop feeling guilty, we would stop feeling this shame, we would we would no longer have a reason to to soothe, you know, we, as 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 you say, and that just has proved to be blatantly untrue. I wish it. Were, sometimes I wish it were true, <laughs> but there seems to be something in the human spirit that craves an external word of, uh, of belovedness, some kind of pardon, some kind of absolution, some sort of something transcendent even. And so I don't think we've created ghosts. I think that there's this is just endemic to what it means to be a creature living in a, the world. In terms of how it, what, what we do about it, that's a very complicated question. But yeah, I, I, hope, that, I hope that's addressed it in part, at least. Yeah, well, the other piece that, that comes out of what you're saying about these little R religions, these busynesses that we are using in a kind of a ritual manner, it's a phrase that comes up a couple times in your book, the idea of a cult of control, the idea that we're trying to control as much of our life and as much as of the people around us as we can. And this this desire for control, I think, is is at the heart of a lot of what's kind of getting us into these patterns of parenting, technology, food, politics, as a way of trying to save ourselves. So tell me a little bit about this this idea of the desire for control and maybe the out-of-control desire for control. Exactly. Isn't that a great way to put it there? The out-of-control desire for control. Sometimes I think that the, the, the phrase original or a sinner should be translated as a control freak, that that's really what it feels like to be uh, the, the Christian anthropology, to live it out in the world, is to be a control freak. I think, yes, in, in a lot of senses, and, and you know, when we refer to things like Marxism, we refer to any of these seculosity forms, we are trying to make life a bit more manageable. 
we're trying life is so difficult and, and there's so many variables that we don't just don't have a handle on that so we're uh, you know raising a child is such a, a scary process and yet such a privilege and yet it's also a scary process and so we learn we yearn for any sense of certainty any kind of handbook or or uh, parenting philosophy that can tell you if you do X then you will do Y and that's really there to pacify one's anxiety about uh, uncertainty and give one sense a sense of control. And of course, what we learn and what what is no stranger to uh, basic most wisdom traditions, but especially Christianity, is that um, that which you seek to control very often ends up controlling you. And so, uh, yeah, the need to to, to control and to, to to have everything under your own agency is a very uh, it, we don't seem to have a choice about that we don't seem to have that under control and that, that is the yet the, the birthplace of an enormous amount of suffering and difficulty if you're just joining us this is things not seen i'm david dalt we're speaking today with david zoll he's the founder and director of mockingbird ministries he's co-host of their podcast the mocking cast and we're talking about his recent book seculosity how career parenting technology food politics and romance became our new religion and what to do about it. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with David Zoll. He's founder and director of Mockingbird Ministries. He's co-host of their podcast, The Mockingcast. And we're talking about his recent book, Seculosity, how career, parenting, technology, food, politics, and romance became our new religion and what to do about it. Well, in the process of our conversation, we've been talking about how we use this doing, and I love your phrase from earlier, human doing, as opposed to human being, as a way to try and pacify ourselves and to try and gain control over unforeseen outcomes, whether we're rearing a child or starting a new job or trying to perform at our best in in uh, in, in the world. But one of the things that I think is interesting about your book is that even though it says in the subtitle what to do about it, I was interested in in what you were suggesting at the end of the book in terms of this idea of doing. Like you you didn't seem to give the reader another formula about what to do. And on the way to that, I'd like I'd like to dig into that and, and figure out what it is theologically that's pulling you away of giving us yet another self-help program. <laughs> well, I'm glad that that came across. You know, you want to make a promise to the reader, and I really felt like I was giving them some hope in this book. And, and a lot, it's a very deeply hopeful book, in fact. And yet, I didn't want to pile on, as you say, another uh, program, another thing to feel bad that you're not living up to, another 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 yardstick to to feel guilty about, or to to, to, to need yet another place where you need to unload that burden. So, um, yes, my sense of life is that um, people, and I think it's also a sense of sort of my reading of the New Testament, is that telling people what they need to do, you may have a uh, strong reason for believing it's true, and you may, you may in fact be completely right about what someone needs to do, but telling them what to do doesn't, simply doesn't work, not, where, not in the real 
crucibles of life, which are where willpower tends to fail. And I'm talking about addiction, depression, and illness, and divorce, and things like that. So I knew that the, the hope that those for those stuck in this endless cycle of proving and coming up short and, um, you know, trying to assert your enoughness is not yet another uh, a sort of a newfangled or even subverted way to find that enoughness. But it's really the proclamation that, that God is, has just, that that is a gift of God to the struggling and difficult and, and controlling human beings. So that's where it's coming from theologically. I try to, I do think that there are ways in which people ex- do experience this, and they experience some relief from the um, oppressive seculosity in which we're uh, stuck. But uh, those can be described, and they, the second you prescribe them, you're, you're then speaking to that side of the person that is already wired to um, make everything into a new program for self-improvement. As we know, it just doesn't... Um, it, it, life doesn't seem to operate according to those. It, it, if all that self improvement stuff worked, then then it wouldn't. There wouldn't be a self improvement industry because people would be improved. <laughs> you know, it, it's uh, it's one of the great catch 22s You use an image in your book, Seculosity. It's an image of your grandfather at the beach, and he gets caught in a riptide and gets pulled out into the Atlantic. And one of the insights that you draw from this, and there are several, and and I won't spoil all of them, but one of the insights that you draw from this is that if he had tried to struggle against that, if he had tried to do something, he would have doomed himself, and that the way forward for him, the way kind of out of the riptide, was simply to let it carry him. And that seems to be very much what you're trying to bring us to at the end of the book, is, is God is doing this work, and it's not your job to do in the midst of it, but rather it's your job to accept the work that God is doing. Now, first of all, have I understood that correctly? Well, you absolutely have. I mean, I think what God wants from from people is faith. And I think that faith in God is born when faith in oneself sort of dies, or where it's frustrated. And so the great experience is if, if your faith is simply a, a tool for trying to change the world into your own image, well, then it's going to be a struggle against a riptide, because it's not going to work. You're struggling against God, in fact. What I see from the most spiritual people and sanctified folks that I know is really that there's been some experience, maybe some ongoing experience, that has caused them to surrender and to uh, to let go is, is one word, though, though that usually implies something a little bit more active than I'm talking about in the book. I mean, in this case, it's like, if you don't surrender to the riptide, you will die. But what happens is, in a riptide, is you, 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 you settle into it, you're taken way out to sea, at which point you can then sort of renegotiate, you can, you can move again. But in a lot of cases, our attempts to control and our attempts to rest enoughness out of the sort of stone of whatever it is that um, we've deemed to be important, you know, it's in the subtitle, that that is driving the exhaustion and the anxiety that's counterproductive. So, I mean, that's all a little theoretical, but I think that I hope that the the imagery works. It also happens to be a true story, which is kind of uh, great. I was was finishing the book while we were at the beach, and it was my father-in-law, actually, and they they told that story again. I thought, oh, my goodness, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Let's, uh, Let's put that in there. 
Well, you said something a moment ago that I want to come back to. You said that you've, you've observed that faith in God begins oftentimes when faith in oneself kind of dies away. That brought to mind, and when I was reading the book, it came to mind at several points as well, Milton's wonderful characterization of Satan, the devil in Paradise Lost. There's this moment where Satan is looking around and is trying to figure out creation. And Satan says, I wasn't here when the creation happened. I don't remember that. All I know is that I was self-begotten and self-raised. And that seems to be at the heart of what you're talking about. So long as we think that we're the ones at the center of the story, so long as we think that we're the ones who are the motor power of all of this, we're basically doomed for destruction. And it's, it's getting rid of that notion that we're self-made people in many ways that allows this operation of grace to begin to manifest itself. Is that correct? I think that is. There, there was. Um, they were. They remember. They asked Flannery O'Connor, the great Catholic writer, about why she had so much violence in her stories, and she said that it was to prepare people for their moment of grace. That nothing else. People seem to be so hard-headed that nothing else would do the trick, um, and that we're so stuck or curved in on ourselves in a lot of ways that what often our experience of suffering is simply being uh, having the control wrenched from us in a way that's very unpleasant. And yet, oftentimes, as history attests, and uh, countless uh, Christians would tell you that that is actually the moment of grace in their life, the moment where God became not just an idea or a set of assertions, but an actual living presence that um, made all the difference. Now, in my evoking of Satan a moment ago, some of my listeners will perk up because now I'm talking their kind of language. And for them, they would see the world and these sorts of moments as not just a physical struggle, but actually a manifestation of a spiritual struggle, a spiritual warfare, if you will. And so let let me ask you the question. If I were to characterize this battle against performancism as a type of spiritual warfare or a type of uh, argument against the satanic, would that be language that made you comfortable, or would you want to characterize this in a different way than spiritual warfare language? Well, you know, I'm comfortable with the language of spiritual warfare, absolutely. I think there's, we ignore that at our own peril. I think it can be used as a way to abdicate any kind of um, uh, culpability in some of these scenes, like, uh, because we, we subscribe to performancism is not out there preying upon us, like the, like we would, Christians believe that, that, uh, of the devil. The performatism is something that we have wholeheartedly uh, signed on to, even when we know we shouldn't. And that is the predicament, I think, of the, of the, the sinner, that we know what we should do, and we don't seem to be able to do it. So, um, while yes, I, I can co-sign on spiritual warfare, I also get a little nervous about, about taking away, uh, or about giving people too much of a shield against their own to look at their own involvement in these things and how because i know i'm writing the book you know uh david mostly all of the areas in which i'm talking about are are areas in which i'm complicit so i'm not this person who preaches and uh, writes books and is kind of in an ivory tower but i'm a person who places who looks for uh, enoughness in in my relationship with my children and in my relationship with my spouse and in my relationship to my career uh, and that's why I wanted. I only chose these things because I felt like I could write from a certain perspective of humility. And so I don't. I don't know where that leaves us in terms of how to struggle against these things. But 
I would never deny that the spirit of the age is, and the, the prince of this world, you know, it, it, it's hard to look at all the suffering induced by performancistic dogmas and not feel that you're being preyed upon in some way, uh, while also happily preyed upon. It's a, it's, it's a bit, um, yeah, but the book isn't really about trying to ascribe um, blame. It's more about um, how God works in the midst of these things. Is what we're trying to get at here, is 12-step the best model that we have, or is there a better model that we might find for this kind of letting go and getting back to being in the grace that you're talking about? Mm, well, I certainly think the Church at its best can is, is very, you know, um, it, it's just as wonderful, if not more so, than the 12-step programs. Uh, I think that, unfortunately, the church has been co-opted in a lot of places, at least by all sorts of consumerism and um, desires for its own, to to propagate its own uh, influence or uh, profile. But uh, yes, at its best, it looks a whole lot like AA. You know, everyone's a sinner in the congregation. They're not required to say that when they walk in, so you can kind of, uh, unlike AA, where everyone is really brought to their together by their shared need for a God that uh, can do for them what they cannot do for themselves, which I think is deeply resonant, um, and not just resonant, it's it's uh, constitutive of the Christian outlook and our Christian hope. I just sometimes think that uh, our church structures have maybe sold their birthright in certain ways, but we still see the real thing. God is so great that, you know, it shows up, uh, his power shows up in all sorts of incredible ways in various places. So I do look to AA as a great model, but I also know that there's, I see the longer I'm around uh, and the more sort of bad churches I see, I also see some wonderful churches and churches doing great things in certain areas and others in other areas. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with David Zoll. We're talking about his recent book, Seculosity. We'll be back in a moment. Hey folks, this is David. Thank you for listening and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you're probably aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of them is the Commonweal podcast, produced by my friends over at Commonweal magazine. For almost a century now, Commonweal has staked a claim for Catholic principles and perspectives in American life and for lay people's voices within the church. Their podcast features a wide spectrum of voices discussing art, politics, religion, and civil society. Each episode offers three or four segments that amplify the pages of the print magazine and move into new frontiers. I've been a reader of Commonweal for a long time, and I'm thrilled to share this new podcast with you, whether you're a longtime reader yourself or just discovering it for the first time. You can find the Commonweal podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, as well as on their website, commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. That's commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with David Zoll. He's the founder and director of Mockingbird Ministries, and he's the co-host of their podcast, The Mockingcast. We're talking today about his recent book, Seculosity, how career, parenting, technology, food, politics, and romance became our new religion and what to do about it. What is your greatest point of struggle at this moment around these issues, whether it's career, parenting, technology, food, where are you currently struggling the most? Well, that's uh, that's actually, no one's asked me that question. I, I'm grateful for it. I, I sometimes say food, because I'm a person that self-medicates with food and really searches for comfort in that arena and, 
and as well as status. But, you know, to be honest with you, having put out a book and then uh, promoting it and doing, uh, getting the incredible opportunity to talk to people about it, you completely get, you have your enoughness, your sense of righteousness tied up in your career or people's praise or affirmation or criticism of what it is you've done. So that is a, a, a very present struggle, very real and a present struggle for me right now to sort of um, not, um, at least to bear in mind that the book itself could become a description of what the book is talking about in my own life, which maybe sounds ironic, maybe people, maybe that sounds uh, convoluted or something, but that's, uh, I would say, yeah, 100%, my, how well this thing sells, what people think of me, all of these things, I, I find it to be a deeply, my self-justification is absolutely on the line, even though I believe on a deeper level that it's not, so... Uh, I, I, I haven't gotten to say that out loud. I almost didn't even realize I was feeling it, but uh, so I'm grateful for the opportunity to say it. Well, towards the end of this book, Seculosity, you make an observation, and I think it dovetails with what you were just saying. So we're talking about ways that we're coping with our not-enoughness, whether it's our careerism, our attempt to be the best parent in the world, or as you said, food, and that's a, a struggle point for me as well. Uh, but you you have the insight that this not-enoughness in some ways, it's true, because as Christians, we understand a universe in which we are fallen, a universe in which we are not enough because of sin. But the not enoughness that we're pointing to, that we're trying to fill with all of this performancism, to use your word, it's not actually filling the thing that needs to be filled. And you make the step to say, this is not actually a food problem, it's not a career problem, it's not a parenting problem, it's a sin problem. But help me unpack that. How... In the 21st century, how can we talk about these these things as as reflective of our state of sin? Well, you know, when basically what some people's response to the book is, they say, yes, it is, it is true. You know, we, we're so afraid of being not enough that, that what we really need to do is just silence all those voices telling us that we're not enough. To silence the voice of Madison Avenue, silence the voice in the pulpit, silence the voice on, you know, Fox News or MSNBC, whatever it be. And the truth is, anyone who knows themselves knows that that's a voice inside, as well as one that is echoed throughout creation and the fact that we all die and that we're not enough to prevent that from happening. And so the Christian view of reality really does say that you're not crazy for feeling that you're not enough. You know, you talk to your your wife or your spouse or your, your husband, and they will say, uh, the problem, you know, the the ways in which maybe you you feel that you're not live, living up to things, there's truth to it. And so the human, our hope and that the problem isn't with the law, you could say, to really go theologically. The problem isn't that the law is bad or the law is inaccurate, even when it is inaccurate, when it's sort of perverted into sort of, uh, you know, uh, consumeristic, uh, you know, uh, expressions. But the problem is sin. The problem is that we're not enough. And that, um, in fact, the, one of the great expressions of how not enough we are is our compulsion to constantly be uh, establishing that on our own terms. That, that addiction, as it were, that control freakness that we mentioned earlier, that is evidence of what it means to be a sinner. And sin is something from which a person needs to be saved. It's not, it's not a matter of, like, um, you know, 10 steps or uh, to be improved. We, we believe that God is who, who we need to save us. And so that's where the book 
the book ends not that not to say that we need to re although all these things functions as religions of law and condemnation as accusation, the answer is not ultimately to simply do away with accusation. It's to have, uh, it's it's the grace of God, uh, and not just grace detached from human reality, but grace that's incarnate. So, <laughs> I've, I've given, spoiler alert, uh, people can hear that. But sin is sin is something that, you know, you can only talk about today, in ter- if you talk about it in terms of inherited bias and things like that, or uh, medicated conditions, it's still there. It's not going anywhere. It's the, the empirical reality of the human being. But we know, for example, that we cannot, through self-knowledge, save ourselves. Daniel Kahneman, the great Nobel Prize winning scientist, social psychologist who, who really has made the great study of these things, which tell you the same thing, that self-knowledge does not change a person. It doesn't save them. It barely even changes them. That something else is needed, uh, some deeper tonic or what C.S. Lewis calls a deeper magic. Given that online interaction is often so toxic, and especially around questions like the ones that are preoccupying you, what is it, David Zoll, that keeps you hopeful in your ministry? Well, I very much believe, you know, and the gospel is true. I think that um, the the ways that online life happens uh, bears out the absolute toxicity of needing to justify oneself at every conceivable uh, turn. So um, this message about God, that God is who, and God justifies the ungodly, it is not born out, it is not, it has not become somehow less urgent to me over the years. It's only become more urgent. I see God's work in the world. I see people be healed. I see, um, you know, I see the love to the loveless shown. I see the Holy Spirit at work, and I, it is a tremendous encouragement to me. I think if I were just to completely live online, it would be very difficult, but um, the Church in its embodied reality remains a, a beacon of not just theoretical hope, but I see it. I see people who were alcoholics no longer drinking. I see husbands and wives who were divorced. I've seen them come back together. I've seen racial reconciliation occur, and I almost always see it under the auspices of Jesus. That is my hope, and uh, remains my hope, but the internet is not my hope. <laughs> the internet is definitely not my hope. <laughs> Neither is social media, for that example. But at the same time, I get to connect with wonderful people through those, those means, so nothing's totally cut and dry here. Well, David Zoll, I found your book, Seculosity, to be surprising and eye-opening. It was honest and transparent and I found myself, as I was turning the pages, learning on every page. And I hope that our my listeners today will go and seek this book out. I really appreciate you taking the time to write it with the depth of, and the searching that you did. I also appreciate very much your taking time to talk to us about it today. Well, it's an enormous pleasure and an enormous uh, privilege. So thank you, David. I appreciate it. We've been speaking today with David Zoll. He's the founder and director of Mockingbird Ministries, and he's editor-in-chief of the popular Mockingbird website, and he co-hosts their podcast, The Mockingcast. He and his family live in Charlottesville, Virginia, where he also serves on the staff of Christ Episcopal Church. We've been talking today about his recent book, Seculosity, How Career, Parenting, Technology, Food, Politics, and Romance Became Our New Religion and What to Do About It. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC 
is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kijin. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.